Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 86 for March the 31st, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest once again is Mr. Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester, once again. Our last day of summer, if you count the time of daylight saving as summer. We go back to 10 hours ahead of UTC on the 1st of April. Yes, and I guess it's the last of our time zone mess-ups where North America, UK, and Australia decide at different weeks of the year to change the time to make it extra difficult for all of us to synchronize our calendars. If we all used UTC, Chester, it would be much easier. It certainly would. I, I, I actually had that debate with my uh, massage therapist last week. That's the strangest thing I've ever heard anyone say on Chet Chet. <laughs> you discussed UTC with your massage therapist. But nonetheless... The first story I found this week that may, I found interesting is maybe just because I'm in Canada, but there was another a bit of a, a election disruption due to technology. And I know that, Paul, you wrote about a story in Canada when you were here in February of talking about how th there were like automated phone robots that were calling people and disrupting an, an election to tell people to go to the wrong polling places. And we kind of had a follow-up on that once again in Canada. This last weekend, the New Democratic Party of Canada uh, had a convention to elect a new leader and allowed members of the party to vote over the Internet. And during the process, uh, they suffered a DDoS attack. Uh, the party's reporting that there were over 10,000 IP addresses around Canada bombarding their website to disrupt people from being able to participate in the democratic process. Is the Internet and computers and websites and all this kind of stuff, is it really robust enough that we should be entrusting our, our democratic, our election processes to this system yet? I mean, are, are we kind of stepping outside the bounds? Chester, it sounds as though the answer should be, of course not, because the internet allows powerful cryptography and, you know, the old way of doing voting, using a pencil on a piece of paper, it's old-fashioned, it's inefficient, it's expensive, and all of that stuff makes it sound as though we should be running towards online voting. But a colleague and friend of yours and mine uh, in Sydney, Sean Richmond, actually pointed out to me the other day a paper that was published at a conference in February. Washington, D.C. was about to do a local election uh, where, you know, instead of postal votes, you could do it online. And in what was widely applauded by cryptographers, they actually decided to have a dummy run before the real election, use open source software, say how they'd got to where they were in the electoral process, and then let penetration testers have a go at it. But it was really very revealing about all the sorts of problems that could happen to the point that these guys were able to penetrate the electoral system via the mechanism with which they would return their vote and as a side effect end up being able to see inside the server room where the electoral servers were via webcams that were installed and they actually even published a couple of photos that showed facial expressions of staff before they realized the penetration had happened and the expressions afterwards, which was quite informative. And their conclusion at the end of the paper was, we really aren't ready for online elections yet. There is that great risk that how do you, how do you go back and fix it? At least with physical ballots, you can go and review the process by which the electoral box was locked. You can send people from multiple parties to supervise the process. You can go back and re-examine ballots if there's even an argument about, was this a lawful ballot? Was this an informal or spoilt vote? and all of that stuff. With an online election, it seems it's actually very hard to notice that something's gone wrong, and I gather that's what happened in this case. So Canada has had technology used to disrupt a physical election and technology used to disrupt a technological election uh, in a few months. 
it does look as though technology seems like it's the bad guy here, and I'm not quite sure where we'll go. Uh, some countries and some jurisdictions have used online voting for quite some time, but that Washington DC study was quite worrying. There was an awful lot that could go wrong, and it did, even though they were ready to roll the system out. It was just the fact they decided to subject it to public scrutiny, which is another thing that seems to be uncommon in online systems of this sort. Well, along the lines of trusting the internet, uh, there's been some stories percolating around the DNS changer malware that we've been seeing in Sophos Labs for several years now. Uh, this malware, one of the side effects of it was it would change your DNS settings on your computer to point at uh, DNS servers controlled by the attackers. It's a fantastic way to own someone's computer without needing malicious code on their computer. Simply lie to them about where various properties are on the internet. The real problem comes with the idea that if you do a virus scan and there's no malware on your computer, you can't be affected with this problem. But of course, as you just pointed out, this is about a change that may have been made by the malware some time ago that's leading you to fake DNS servers that the moment, at the moment are controlled by the FBI in a way that they always tell the truth. But it's still the wrong setting for your computer. So you could be uninfected, but still affected by the malware. And that's something that you need to go and check. Yeah, there are things that people can do. And I mean, that's part of the problem here is the FBI can't run these servers that they've apprehended from the criminals forever. I know for Australian users, and actually this should work for anybody globally, uh, not to overburden the Australians with the problem, but there is a website, dns-ok.gov.au, that will tell you if your machine is in some way pointed at these name servers that were previously controlled by criminals. And the problem is that the FBI is going to be turning off these fake servers that have now been replaced by legitimate ones. It's in June, isn't it? July 9th is the day they're going to turn them off. And talking to other people I know that help a lot of their friends and family that may be innocent victims of this, if on July 9th you need to help some people out, one thing you can do immediately is just point their DNS at 8.8.8.8. Very easy to remember. It's Google's public DNS. That will at least enable them to get access to the internet. And then you can contact their ISP and find out what a proper local DNS is that they should be using. Yes, that's great advice. And very importantly, if you see outside Australia the story taking hold that broke here towards the end of this week that this could cause a total disconnect from the internet, don't get the wrong end of the stick. You'll still be able to connect to the internet. It's not that your ISP is going to cut you off. It's just that you're not going to be able to do anything very easily on the internet because you'd have to know the IP number of every site that you wanted to go through. So don't confuse the fact that it's going to be hard to use the internet with the idea that somebody who doesn't do anything will actually get cut off. This is a case where helping friends and family can really work well. It is time to clean up and we need to move on. So uh, Facebook posted a couple weeks ago an update to their, a proposed update, I should say, on their site governance um, thing on Facebook. This is like a Facebook RFC, isn't it? Yeah, sort of like a Facebook RFC. That's a good way of putting it. And one of the things I found rather interesting about it is that Facebook changed the name of their privacy policy from a privacy policy to a data usage policy. And while some people might be quite skeptical, the Internet's a public place. And Facebook is being, I think, a bit open about it, saying it, this is how we're going to use the data that you put on Facebook. This is what we're going to do with it. This is how we're going to use it. Uh, Facebook may be free in cost, but it's not free in liberty. You're trading your information in order to use this free service. And here's the, uh, you know, here's the way we're going to use it. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Paul? I guess you can say it's honest. 
data use policy, not privacy policy. Uh, I don't know whether they'd be able to evade having a privacy policy altogether. That's actually a legal requirement in some jurisdictions, is it not? Uh, I think it's a pity that it's come to this. I think it's a pity that the big web properties are more concerned with that big data we spoke about in a recent chat chat of collecting as much as they can in the hope of commercializing it ever more. But that, unfortunately, seems to be what a significant majority of users on the internet want. All I hope is that that not insignificant minority who do care about privacy continue to make that known. In other words, let's not go quietly. We don't have to be arrogant or aggressive or disruptive in a lulsec or anonymous way about it. But if you do feel strongly about privacy, then be sure to make that feeling known, you know, with friends, with family, with colleagues. You can go respectfully without going quietly. I agree. And, you know, I guess what I did kind of like about it is that it opens up the bargain about what it is we're really doing. I mean, Google is not free. Gmail is not free. Yahoo is not free. Bing is not free. You know, you are an employee who is paid not in cash or wages, but in kind. Exactly. Just think of it that way and it all becomes quite clear. You are basically doing work on behalf of the Facebooks, the Hotmails, and the Googles and whatnot by generating the traffic that lets them make money. And if you don't think you're being paid enough, don't join in. And I really mean that in the same way that if you're joining one of those old-fashioned loyalty programs at a supermarket chain or a hotel or an airline, do the calculations before you join. If they're offering you, on average, a 1% discount for letting them keep an exact record of every purchase you make in every store and what time you made it and what you bought next, if 1% discount is not enough, don't join in. Decide for yourself what is it that I want in return and is that sufficient for what I'm giving up. Don't just say, oh, well, everyone else is doing it and you've got to be in it to win it, so I'll do it and, you know, the internet will be no fun without. Scott McNeely, then of Sun, said, oh, there's no privacy on the internet, get over it. Actually, in my opinion, that's the very attitude we need to get over. So there you go, you, you can have privacy on the internet. There may be times when you're willing to give it up to get something in return. Just make sure that it really is worth it. Couldn't agree more, Paul. The last story is kind of tied into this as well, which is related to Indian call center fraud. I want to be very careful about this because I'm not trying to in any way cast aspersions on a culture or a people or anything else, but more about the idea that putting stuff somewhere else makes it not my responsibility. Chester, just to, to interject on the, the issue of Indian call centers, that's where a call center has most recently been caught out in a rather obvious way, selling data. So that's just the one we know about. And since in many countries of the world, uh, including many in which call centers operate, there is no mandatory disclosure regulations, could be going on a lot more than you think. Yeah, I mean, in fact, you know, the primary place for call centers for Russian pharmacies, from what I can tell, is, is Montreal and here in Canada. And uh, I'm sure that's because it makes it seem much more like a Canadian pharmacy. But the reality is these call center workers have access to very private information, payment information, uh, social insurance slash social security, you know, et cetera kind of stuff, depending on the type of business they're involved in. And it, and the uh, one of the papers in the UK came out with a story where they did an undercover investigation and contacted some supposed IT workers at one of these call centers in India. And they were willing to sell people's private information for two pence. Three U.S. cents, two pence, three 
Australian cents if you still had them, but a very low price for people's credit card information, the, the CVV codes or the verification codes, uh, checking account information, financial information, names, addresses, phone numbers, all kinds of stuff for just pennies per person. I guess the question becomes, when is outsourcing a greater liability than it is a cost saving? Like, are the organizations that contract with these, with these companies where the, the, their employees aren't theirs and they don't know what they're doing, are they responsible for it, like, under the law? Like, will they be held liable? When is it really saving you money? Well, you can't outsource your accountability not in any arm of business or morality or life. You know, if you have a responsibility, if you have some accountability, if you have a liability that's yours, you can't just pay someone else to take that for you, particularly not when it comes to protecting data that you yourself collected about your customers for your own commercial benefit. And my goodness, if our personal data might be at risk by call center employees who presumably have to go and look this stuff up, how much more concerned should we be about entirely automated cloud services where all the data is just sitting there and we hope that nobody corrupt is inside that organization or that no bad guy actually gets in and is able to wander around and look at it. So I see outsourcing and cloud as two sides of the same coin, particularly where you're outsourcing outside your jurisdiction, outside your industry sector. You're outsourcing to an organization whose primary responsibility is not to your customers, but to its own shareholders. There's a cost with doing it yourself, and that's the cost of doing business. I guess maybe you have to raise the price of your iPhone 30 cents. Uh, I'm not sure. Or make your services sufficiently easier to use that the number of calls that your customers need to make is decreased. There are many ways to skin a cat. And just saying, oh, well, this is not core to our business, so we're going to outsource it and offshore it, uh, particularly when that part of your business is handling, processing, and working with data that you collected for your business purposes. I don't get how that is not core to your business. I agree. Well, that, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat episode 86. As always, for the latest security news, please read nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on iTunes and via RSS. And until next time, stay secure.